0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is your boy, Captain Hunter. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for all the love and support and everything I've been getting so far. Really, really appreciate it. Just wanted to um, just remind you all to follow me on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, both of those are Hunter. Remember, we have uh, live episodes every Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, those will be on Facebook, simulcast on Facebook, YouTube. And Periscope, all of those are Captain Hunter's podcast, not my personal pages. Captain Hunter's podcast. Also, uh, remember you can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Please, I really would appreciate your support. A dollar an episode, right? Five dollars a month. A dollar, well, actually, it would be like a dollar twenty-five. Actually, it's more than that because I'm, I'm putting on almost two episodes between the audio and the uh, live. So, if you can give a dollar episode, that'd be great. Five dollars a month. Something along those lines, really, to help support the podcast and make sure it keeps going and keeps growing. Really, really would appreciate it. With PayPal, Cash Out Venmo, or the Patreon page, Captain Hunter's Podcast on Patreon, p a t r e o n dot So any of those platforms would help to do it. Today we have a good episode for you. We have Dr. William Lopez uh, from the University of Michigan, and I'm going to read to you his bio. Uh, Dr. William. D. Lopez is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and faculty director of public scholarship at the National Center for Institutional Diversity. He is the author of the book, Separated Family and Community in the Aftermath of an Immigration Raid. As a clinical assistant professor, William teaches health impacts of immigration law enforcement in the U.S. This class focuses on violence of immigration enforcement on the individual, family, and community levels and ask what we as researchers and advocates can do to address it. Themes include militarized immigration raids, ICE, and local police collaboration, routinized fear, the stigma of being targeted by ICE, and the links between the state violence in Latinx, Arab, and the Muslim and Black communities. Uh, So that's a little bit about Dr. Lopez. I got hooked up with him through Professor Seth Stoughton. You guys probably heard... Uh, Professor Stoughton on my uh, podcast before, really, really smart guy, hooked me up with Dr. William Lopez, which I really appreciate. Um, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get right into the episode. We're going to have the, the, the uncomfortable discussion of immigration. I know this is a hot topic. People want it. People don't want it. I personally don't think that there's any plan, any real substantive plan to stop integration in any type of meaningful way. I think it, everything is working the way that the system wants to work and, and is designed to work. The question that we're gonna to attempt to answer is uh, what can we do about you know the the, the uh, fear the dread and the consequences we're gonna we're gonna take a look today at the fear the dread and the consequences of uh, these certain types of raids and the physiological effects on it has on uh, the person the individual the family member how it traumatizes family how it traumatizes kids um, and, and uh, just the whole ripple effect Uh, that this type that these types of raids have on people so without further ado ladies and gentlemen here is the interview with dr william lopez thanks for coming on the podcast i'm here with dr william lopez i really really appreciate you coming on to captain
1: hunter's podcast welcome Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your patience because <laughs> Lord knows I had to reschedule a few times. So I'm happy to finally be here. Thanks for uh, having
0: me. Well, It's not a problem. I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that you actually sent me some messages saying you know what the situation was, because unfortunately I've had some guests who just kind of I'm like, hey, where are you at? Oh, I, I had something going on. So which is which is so unprofessional, you know. I've had, Sure. And this is fr- I try to get you know PhDs like yourself. Uh, smart people, attorneys, and and just people, business owners, and when they are doing stuff like that, (laughs) you know, what do you expect from the, from the common man or or woman, (laughs) you know, so, so uh, once again, thanks for coming on, Um, reached out to you, and you were kind enough and gracious enough to send me your book, Separated. I see, I think you grabbed it. You might, if you want to hold it up for the sure, audience. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, separated the, uh, the uh, aftermath family family and community in the aftermath of an immigration raid. Here's my copy that you sent me. There we and go. I really, really uh, enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was a great work. So before we dive into that, can you just tell the audience just
1: a little bit about yourself? Sure, happy to do that. I actually think we were introduced by one of your friends our colleagues, Seth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll (laughs) make sure. You know, I want when we when we share this, I want to make sure and shout him out. He's been really, uh, really good about speaking publicly about many of these issues. So I think that's how we got in touch. Uh, Yeah. So my name is Dr. William Lopez. Um, Bill is fine. Dr. Lopez is fine. Whatever you know, you prefer, Captain Hunter. And I'm the author of Family, uh, and I'm the author of Separated Family and Community in the aftermath of an immigration raid. And I'm also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Um, So that means a few things. And one of them is just that I take a health perspective when thinking about immigration and policing. And what I notice, having talked about this pretty frequently is that many people take a health perspective. It's just not often called health. Um, So I try to be a little more explicit, right? So what are the impacts on our bodies and our minds and emotionally And then in our families and our communities in policing and immigration enforcement. Um, As far as myself, uh, I'm originally from Texas. My mother was born in Mexico. Most of my family is either in Mexico or in Texas or now in Michigan. Um, So I have experience living in a largely Latino community in the south uh, for my first 18 years of my life. But then up here in Michigan, where it's a largely white community with smaller pockets of Latino folks, including immigrants who've recently arrived compared to san antonio where folks have been there since as we say the border crossed us mm, yes
0: uh so thank you for that uh and yes you're absolutely right about seth I, uh he is a good man who's been on my podcast three or four times i'm probably going to start paying him if, if i invite him <laughs> <out>. <laughs> um, right uh but uh i guess i gotta pay myself first right so <laughs> um yeah so i actually want to have him back on because he's wrote another book as well that i Trying to get to eventually, um, so how did you end up in 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 Michigan um, from from Texas? How would you end up?
1: Yeah, uh, good question. You know, so I, I San Antonio grew up, and then I went to the University of Notre Dame. So from Texas to the Midwest. After that, I moved back to Houston with my partner, as she taught. Uh, she taught kindergarten for three years, and I got my master's in public health. While I was getting my master's in public health in Houston, I was working at a, a homeless shelter. Um, one of the things that I saw there, you know, what we were doing is often helping folks with their resumes, right? because we thought, oh, your homeless job, right, easy path to, we believed, uh, or many folks believe, to get out of homelessness. Um, but what I saw, you know, that there would be a bus that took folks after they were released from jail or prison and dropped them off where we were, and they walked into, well, you know, to our, our center. And um, what they needed was not immediately help with, with the job, right? What they needed was so much more than that, like, I mean, just to give an example, if you didn't have an address, if you didn't have a phone number, then how would you know if a, a, an employer was going to call you back? Uh, so it was there I kind of started to, oh, additionally, everybody had, um, in this case, many times it was drug users and it was many folks with felonies, um, and it was an all black community, right? So these issues such as drug use and racism and histories of incarceration started to be really clear to me, like, oh, this is, sure, we can call it employment, but why is it only patterning among certain people? Um, Fast forward a bit and, and we moved up to, to Michigan because uh, my partner's turn was it was her turn to go get her her advanced degree we tag team our advanced degrees a lot um, and so she got her MSW while I was working here at the University of Michigan because her parents are pretty close we knew we wanted kids um, and we wanted them to be close to some grandparents so I worked here and then got my PhD in, in public health and you know as I mentioned it it ended up meaning uh, looking back, that I've bounced between the southern border, or at least Texas. I lived a little north of the southern border. San Antonio is not far, um, but where the Latino population has been there for quite some time, to a place where the immigrant community is vastly different here in Ann Arbor. So, different types of communities who experience enforcement in different ways. Mm. Very nice. Yeah, I've been to San Antonio a couple of times.
0: I actually like that city.
1: Yeah, oh. no, it's a great place. Yeah, I yeah. you know, I, I like it here in Michigan and Arbor a lot. But if I were to go back to Texas, it'd be San Antonio They're they're though they are having a, a pretty rough time with the pandemic right now. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: I mean, most most places are so we talked about this a little bit before we got on camera here. What, so how are you uh, dealing with the pandemic speaking to you guys in Michigan and all that? How, how's it going? Out there?
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, personally, um, you know, it, this is one of the hardest things I've done, and I'm well aware that I'm as, about as privileged as you, you could possibly be in this situation, right? So the reason it's challenging is for many of the reasons other folks listening, uh, especially parents, understand. Um, our kids are home, uh, so we're trying to work two full-time jobs uh, while schooling our kids in front of a computer, etc. cetera. Um, it's hard to take care of your kids, and their, their emotional needs are extreme right now. They don't know if they're going to get sick, they're struggling to understand these things. They're worried about their parents and their aunts and their uncles and their grandparents getting sick and dying. Um, so it's been challenging, but like I said, um, at least from my position as a, as a professor, uh, my partner also works in the university and we're both able to work from home. Um, and simple things like we have enough laptops so that we can work and a kid can be at school at the same time, right? Um, and that is definitely not everyone's experience. You know, People working face-to-face, essential workers, uh, people lo- are losing somebody, as, as you mentioned earlier. Um, the losses are deep. Uh, the times are hard, and for me, it's challenging. But we're we're privileged. I think living in Michigan and seeing how Detroit fared, and then seeing how Michigan got better, and then coming from Texas and seeing how Texas fares, uh, has been hard. My my home community of Texas, like my heart breaks for my family, uh, both my you know literal flesh and blood family, but also my people there as I continue to see this climb. And as you know, I imagine we can talk about um, predictable reasons why COVID is climbing mostly among communities of color and, and low income communities, right? Like we know that racial disparities uh, play out in this way. Like many of us know, but now we're seeing it playing out on the national stage. So long-winded answer to your question. I'm personally doing well It's a challenging time, but um, this is, the situation is bringing to light many of the, of the reasons or rather of the racial fault lines in the systems in our country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's dig into that. And yeah, yeah. I did mention before uh, uh, that I did lose uh, two persons. Uh, one was a, a, a church member, and another was a church member who I kind of grew up with. He was—I looked at him as like an older brother. When he passed, that was really devastating. What makes it hurt additionally more is right because you're so reserved. Into, should you go to the family? Should you go to the funeral? Right, because you don't want to, you know, spread spread anything or, or catch yeah. anything or whatever. So that makes it really, really W hard to, to have to go through this. Your, your masters, you said, and is in, was in public health. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah the, the master's yeah, so, and then the
1: PhD, both in public health.
0: Yeah. So, so here we are. Uh, I mean, explain to us what's happening, <laughs> you know, how, how the government bungled this or, or did they bungle it yeah. in your opinion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: know. <laughs> here we are is a good way to put it right in the, in the middle of. As you said before we started, 2020 is just not going to quit, is it? <laughs> um, you know, I think in, in a little bit going back toward the, you know, to, toward the topic of, of the book. And I think, you know, so the question is, why are we seeing these rates among communities of color? And, um, you know, we see many of the reasons that I think folks of color are well aware that this is how health disparities play out. And when we say health disparities, we mean our communities get sicker and die younger than our white peers, right? And it's things like uh, segregation, access to medical care, incarceration. Um, Not everybody considers these systems directly related to our health and the health of our communities, but they absolutely are. Um, You know, I think about like if you were born on a state that, in in the border of a state that expanded after the Affordable Care Act, expanded Medicaid, or if you were born on the other side, like that's gonna shape your life and we know that more southern states declined on the expansion after the Affordable Care Act. I think another enormous element of this, especially for, uh, so I use the phrase mixed status communities. uh, And briefly, what I mean by that is uh, communities, often Latino, but can certainly be other groups in which some folks are undocumented, some folks have visas, some folks are citizens, right? So this is what communities really look like on the ground. We tend to talk about undocumented folks or undocumented communities as if everyone's just undocumented in these pockets. It's not really how it is. Um, But we see in in these mixed status of communities Folks have known forever, and certainly for this administration, and I'd say for the previous as well, um, that the government knows what's in store for them. The government wants to renew them. Re- excuse me. The government wants to remove them. Um, so to suddenly make this switch and think, oh, the government actually wants to keep me healthy while the government wants to remove me. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in that, right? So to trust the government to keep you healthy when it's trying to deport you. And we know deportation is fundamentally bad for people's health, right? So this doesn't work. This, this, this. All of a sudden, we want to, but but it's tricky because often it's federal government trying to remove and local government trying to keep folks safe and healthy. So there's a lot for public health folks to do to try to explain these things. Um, the last piece I'll, I'll add, I you know we could talk about these issues at length, especially uh, for communities of color, is is the types of jobs where are often um, we, we often working right. So many of these are are essential essential services that are face-to-face. Um, but I think I'm, I'm actually gonna give a, a different example. Um, I've done some work with folks who, are, who work in the meatpacking system or, or meatpacking industry and, and uh, factory work. And I've done some work in the prison and detention system. And both of these systems make their profit by packing people of color as close together as possible, right? so prisons make money by packing people close these factories make money by packing people close so that they can continue the conveyor belt of taking chickens apart. Um, And they're packed in a cafeteria, you know, so there's very small spaces. Lots of differences between prisons and between factories. I'm not meaning to say these are the same thing. I'm certainly meaning to say that people of color are often packed close. We see this also in our segregation. We see it by zip code. Um, But what we see in these situations that it's nearly impossible to follow the CDC guidelines and where have the biggest outbreaks of COVID been in our country, right? The biggest clusters. And of the top 10, it's something I didn't, I should have looked at the stats right before this, but something like six of them are prisons. And f- what did I say, 10? Something like five of them are prisons, six of them are prisons, three of them are factory plants. And then one was the cruise ships that were uh, happened at the beginning. Um, but all of our clusters are happening in these places where folks of color are, are packed together. Um, and these aren't the first things we're thinking about when we're thinking about health care and when we're thinking about disease spread. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that we have to really kind of deal with here. Um, you talked about, man, just the, the health disparities in, in immigration, and that negatively affects, um, uh, you know, uh, those who are being deported. So let's kind of dig into your book here. Why sure. did you why did you write the book? What do you open to accomplish?
1: Yeah so in in the book and separated um, what I what I do is largely follow the impacts or the aftermath of an immigration raid that happens uh, you know about seven miles from the University of Michigan right so this big flagship institution um, in the Midwest and this extremely impactful immigration raid that happened really right next door you know I'm even closer to this raid than the University of Michigan and what I really among the many things I wanted to highlight here is just that immigration raids and deportation, immigration raids and, and deportation um, don't just happen at the, at the Southern border, right? So it's, it's not just California and Texas that are shaped by immigration enforcement. Um, it's throughout the Midwest, it's throughout the heartland of the US. Um, and I say that, you know, as a Texan who was heartbroken to, I was actually in Texas at the time um, that the story broke about children being separated from their, from their parents uh, at the border, and you know we talk about it as children being caged. Um, so that should absolutely get attention. There's no doubt in my mind about that, and we should think about the ways that immigration enforcement happens throughout the country. Um, so what I did was was speak with, and this is you know my community, speak with members of my community about what happened after the raid. and, and um, you know when I talk about it in the beginning of the book, when I kind of envisioned it, I was thinking of speaking to the men who were the targets of the raid. And the men who were arrested and the men who were deported. Um, what I ended up doing is speaking to the people left behind after the men was removed, which in most cases was, was women, was mothers, right? Um, and then to community members. So what I ended up finding was not, you know, was the, was the impact of the absence of, of these people, the removal of these people and the impact of all of those people who, excuse me, the impact on the folks who were left behind. Um, And these are the folks who don't appear in our deportation statistics, especially during the Obama era. We remember it was largely men being deported. Um, And after the raid, you know, some one of the mothers I worked with just walked back across from Michigan took a bus to Texas and walked across the border herself because her life fell apart up here. And she won't appear in any deportation statistic. Uh, She was traumatized. Uh, I would argue that she had PTSD. She couldn't care for her child. She was poor. So she left. Um, these are the stories that are easy to miss Um, so my hope in the book was to think about these enforcement actions that happen in more places than just the border and also to think about just the rippling effects of deportation and how it impacts more than just those who are targeted and those who are removed Mm
0: -hmm. yeah there were some really some touching stories that you mentioned in that in that book but before we get to the Get to that. I mean, let me ask you about obviously the other side, the more conservative members of the audience, if I have any, uh, who, who would uh, you know say, well, these people shouldn't be here in the first place. Um, um, you know, they take the more hardline stance. How would you address them uh, as far as listen? They shouldn't be here in the first place. You know, you're taking jobs away from people. You're driving down uh, wages. What's what's your response to, to that?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, many of those are, are, are fairly common pushback. And you know, I think you let you want three different arguments. You know, the job argument, they shouldn't be here in the first place, to put down wages. Yeah. Um, so I'll go with the first one that they shouldn't be here in the first place. Um, most people who cite the breaking of a law without consideration of the value of the law or the punishment that comes after the law. Have never themselves been the target of an unjust law, right? Oh, that's um, true. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> if they had to go through something,
0: maybe they, they wouldn't be thinking that way. But, but continue. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. yeah. I'm, I'm,
1: uh, <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. That lightened the mood because this is a tougher one to talk about. No, for sure. I mean, I mean, you know, and I, I was, I was a few of the examples that I, I often cite are um, women went to prison for voting when women were not allowed to vote right and I'm sure those folks were not are not saying like well they should not have voted only men should vote when slaves would run away uh, you know remind folks that when they were brought back often ears were cut off and hamstrings were severed right I would not say that those folks are probably arguing well they shouldn't have you know and maybe they are and if that's the issue um, you have to reflect on the law right not all laws are are just and moral and fair merely because they exist. Um, so for many of these laws, like the the immigration law, like the restricting people from coming to the country, uh, if we had a more open country, a country that was willing to work with folks who wanted to come, we could address lots of these issues, right? There's uh, fewer undocumented folks when we change the law and the definition of what it means to be undocumented. Um, and these are folks, you know, that are often contributing directly to our economy, uh, for sure. So the other thing that comes with while well, they're driving down wages is like, oh yeah, we're totally on the same page about that. Let's pay, let's pay people a fair wage, right? This is one of the ones where like, yeah, I align with you and we're kind of going in different directions, but yes, I don't like exploitation either. As a matter of fact, I think the U.S. is is built on this ideal that we shouldn't exploit our workers right our unions brought us to 40 hour work weeks our unions bought us to brought us to paid time off um, we agree on those things we agree that, that workers should be treated correctly um, and there's one more point that you that you asked about and I think one of oh, going back to the idea of proportionality right uh, so it's really important to reflect on if you break a law what the what the punishment is. Um, and in this case, the punishment of, of deportation and removal, and often the form in which that arrest prior to the deportation takes place, right so it's immigration raids and violence and living in fear and 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 cutting off access to medical care and um simply disproportionate to the the civil offense right so this is a civil offense this is this is not a criminal offense um it's just disproportionate to the to the legal infraction
0: yeah. Have you ever had any discussions with persons like that? Any debates going back and forth with and saying, you know, what I just said? Well, listen, you're driving down wages. You're, I think, yeah, you did. I did say three things. Driving down wages, taking jobs, and uh, they shouldn't be in the first place. You ever had a debate with any of these people or, or
1: you know? Yeah, at, at times. Um, not as much, you know, and I think there's lots of, uh good data on wages right so undocumented folks aren't driving down wages and they generally and they're not taking jobs right generally there's there's enough jobs um if they're driving down wages as i mentioned we agree we should not be engaging in these exploitative practices we should pay minimum wage etc more than a minimum wage but we should at least pay minimum wage Um, but you know i'll be honest with you the one angle i don't enjoy going down very much is this economic argument right um the uh I don't like the argument that is, well, these folks are coming to do the work nobody wants to do, and they're coming and doing their work cheaply, and the truth is they're very rarely using medical services anyway, and they're contributing large amounts into the Social Security, they're paying taxes, and when you retire, you'll get to use their Social Security that they're paying. In retirement, you're building off of their tax base, etc. I don't like making that argument, and maybe it'll lose me some some readers, and maybe it'll lose uh, i 'll lose some arguments, but like i don 't think people should have to pay with their bodies or their lives or their families to be able to be with their with their family and keep their family together right uh, so my grandfather came from Mexico and he worked in an automobile shop in, in Flint when um, he was making a tire, and his arm got caught in the machine right and so it is severed his arm about right here like about above the a uh, uh, little below the elbow and I remember him growing up my whole life you know he had this he had a hook on the end and I remember as a little kid, I could see the hook had a wire that went to his other shoulder and he actually opened the hook when he moved his shoulder and, you know, just as a kid, it was like, whoa, that's, I I don't know, it was interesting. But my grandfather had already paid for his, you know, he paid with his body, he paid with his his labor had already cost him his arm. He raised, you know, six children with one arm. I don't want to make the argument that everybody should be engaging in high-risk jobs cheaply for no medical education. For us to be able to respect them as people, you know, and I'm also well aware that that's some people need that economic argument. And I'm often glad there's others who are here to make that economic argument because oftentimes I'm not the one to do it.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so let's talk about life pre pre raid. Do you ever talk right. to talk, talk to individuals pre raid what their life is like, how they're living? And I'm going to talk about not, not just good stuff, but are they living in fear or
1: all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, you know, and I, I write a lot in the book about um, how this intersected with policing. So the raid and when I was doing the work, I was in the middle of the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I ended up seeing many parallels between, in this case, a mixed race Latino community and what I saw and how police discussed uh, the Black community and their role in the Black community, right? Um, and I think what's often easy for folks when they're seeing, often in the case when this was going on, black men uh, killed on film, um, is that they're focusing on that issue of police violence, right? That pulling of the trigger. And what they're neglecting is that many of these communities are not only shaped by the possibility of being killed or, you know, choked to death on the sidewalk, or you know, and you can name any number of the ways folks were killed. Not the communities are reacting not only to the threat of being killed but also to the threat of the everyday stop and frisk, right? To the threat of the everyday, I'm going to pull over, pull you over and ask you about your taillights. Um, and the reason we miss those things is because we're, we, we see this, what I call hyperviolence, and that's where our attention goes. We're missing the other like slow types of violence that happen every day and shape people's lives. But also one is fundamentally shaped by the other. We engage, we, we assume the position when we see the police and we know they're going to stop and frisk us because we know of the potential, because we know the outcome could be being shot, right? And so I think your question is a great one, like what is life before the raid? Um, And I would say it's similar to life like before the police shooting, you always knew it could be there. Folks always knew the raid could be there. Um, So their entire lives were shaped by the possibility of it being there. Now, afterward, it ha- when after it happened, it's certainly like life definitely concretely falls apart. You know, you're poor, you lose, you lose a loved one, they disappear, you're paying lawyers, you're scared. But before, you're still living in fear of its possibility. So you're still avoiding places, you're still avoiding people, you're still not, you know, talking to lawyers just because you're scared of the possibility of being removed.
0: Some people are scared to talk to the lawyers because, uh, is that what you said? The-
1: yeah, and, and, you know, that can be, it can be interesting, um, situations in which that comes up. So, you know, scared to talk to lawyers or scared to go seek medical care, or basically there's this fear of putting yourself on any type of radar, right? As opposed to the line is usually living in the shadows. Um, That often includes, yeah, speaking to lawyers um, because you don't know what will happen if if you have an unwinnable case and you brought to your case to ICE, right? So you have to petition for status to the Department of Homeland Security or ICE, excuse me, Department of Homeland Security. And once your case is brought to them, there's a fear, well, now they have your address and they'll deport me. Uh, So folks are often scared and engaging in any of these systems, often systems that are meant to help them too.
0: Yeah, I can remember uh, being in my younger days, (laughs) we had, uh, there was a a number of of houses all in the same area. And we knew that they were all illegal. Um, And if I use an offensive term, I'm not doing it intentionally. (laughs) that's what we called them illegal, whatever their status was. Well, we knew that, you know, that they were doing whatever they were doing under under the table and all that type of stuff. And so, um, and what would happen often is not only did we know as the police, but the criminals knew, right? So they would have home invasions often, right? People would in, but, and sometimes uh, they wouldn't call us because number one, it happened so often and people would, would do things to them uh, because they knew that they wouldn't call the police right. uh, they wouldn't cooperate with the police because they because of their status, and I always felt so bad for them because I knew that they, we all knew that they were being abused, but I you know I have a sensitive heart. I'm like man, these people are being abused and and, and, and you know they're not, either not going to call us, not going to trust us um, and, and have you ever dealt with anything like that where you know people have been just yeah. been victimized because of their status?
1: Yeah, sure, I think it's a great question um i the correct word is uh, the word we use now is undocumented we'll or okay. not to use the word <laughs> illegal anymore okay. i think it's a great question um so one of the things that i find to be the a, a great question when folks ask me this uh and it'll be interesting speaking with a you know a former officer as well but i think I, I ask them think about the last time you got a speeding ticket which police department pulled you over and what was their normal protocol? Do they take it for five over, 10 over or 20 over? Nobody can answer those questions. I can't answer those questions, right? Now in some cities, there's one police department, so you know who it is. In other cities, and Ann Arbor isn't really that big, but like right by my house, I know where the two roads intersect, where we have uh, Pittsfield PD, Ipsy PD, Ann Arbor PD, Washington County Sheriff's Department. So at least four, right? And people have different perceptions of all of those. Um, but rarely do they know exactly who pulled them over nor do they keep track of who has differing uh, policies. So certainly from the police point of view and I see this when I talk to police departments who believe they're supportive of undocumented folks and, and some are um, that it's, it's unfortunate that folks don't trust them and from the undocumented perspective uh, it's often a shot in the dark right so like you can if you trust one but not three you're no more likely to, you know, like you said, call the police at one address and the other address. It just doesn't sometimes play out that way. Um, there's just this fear of the general law enforcement body, and you know, often well grounded. Look at Sheriff, what's his name, Joe Arpaio, and yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, many, you know, and secure communities. The whole, the whole basis of of Obama's enforcement was let's combine police and, and uh, rather, I guess in this case, sheriffs and jails. Um, but police work in that system too and and immigration enforcement so it's a very well-founded fear of this um i was going to add one other piece that you you mentioned yeah you know it's terribly easy to exploit folks who won't call the police and won't cooperate with police and i think we see this in, in two really at least two really terrible ways uh one is often folks women who are the victims of domestic violence simply don't cooperate with the police won't call them won't file um you know because they're scared. Uh, in addition to the deportation of even an abuser may lead to poverty, right? So they're stuck in this terrible situation. Um, I was gonna add one more. You mentioned they wouldn't call. Oh, right, so the other issue that gets tricky is, is they, folks won't call because they don't have ID. Um, yeah. And you know, as, as you read and I discussed pretty heavily in the book, uh, ID becomes a strong signifier of your immigration status in lots of states not you know not nationally but in many states you can't get a driver's license without um, you can't get a driver's license without a social security number or if you're undocumented so an officer who wants to find out if you're undocumented as soon as they see your passport or they see that you don't have a license they drill down and they'll ask right and so lots of this is not only do I not really know which police departments are the quote-unquote good ones or supportive ones But I also don't know if an individual officer in that department is going to keep digging when they see that I have a passport and not a license.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had a a nasty situation just the other day (laughs) uh, concerning ID in uh, Mm. the police. Um, This was a different state police barracks. I'm actually, I was going to let people know this uh, later on, but I'll mention it now. I'm writing a book. Uh, actually i'm i'm just sending it to the editors now uh so it'll be out soon and i actually quote you in the book in the book no, as well. like
1: yeah <laughs> no, um, well i'll say thank you now and i hopefully it's yeah it, it's a good quote
0: no it definitely <laughs> is it, de- <laughs> it definitely is it definitely is no, and i want to get into great, that. i want to get into that story a little bit but i'm writing a book yeah. and so I, I only mention that now because i um I had a nasty running with uh, some officers uh from a different uh Organization, and it was all over ID. Well, it wasn't all over ID, but um, but I can understand that you know when people get challenged and asked for their ID, it's, it's like, why, what, what do you need to keep digging into me for? You know, and then and then, and I mentioned this in the book, and I'm giving people a preview right now. So if they if you resist in that, then it just it antagonizes the whole situation, right? I I know who I am. I'm an educated person. I'm a former police captain. But if I ask them for their for their badge number or their name, they're just going to tell me their their, bag, their last name and their badge number. It's this whole power trip that that I think right. that police officers really need to get off of. So
1: yeah, well, and I think you know, going back to your your previous question of what was it like the day before the raid or the in my you know the day before the shooting, um, and that's something I go into pretty extensively with the ID is that often officers are asking for an ID of somebody in the passenger seat, somebody they see walking on the sidewalk. There's no legal reason to give the officer your ID, but it, in, these, in communities where you can be manipulated and exploited like this, like with the threat of deportation, or if with the threat of being killed, um, you're likely to do what the officer asks, right? Yeah. So I think in many communities, uh, folks have this big, well, what's your constitutional right? Why didn't you oppose? Why didn't you put up a fight? And, you know, I find folks in, in black and mixed status, Latino communities are like, well, I know very well why I didn't put up a fight. It was much <laughs> easier to like absolve myself of that constitutional right, show an ID and pray that I could move along. Yeah. Um, but this ability to bully through constitutional rights only exists because we have this hyper militarized and violent ends that folks can meet um, if they don't listen, regardless of what's actually the law.
0: I, I absolutely agree with that and you know I obviously know what I what I have to provide and what I don't have to provide but rather than sit there and argue with this guy I'm mean, going to listen I don't want to be here I just gave him my ID right. but I'm but I'm thinking the whole time <clears throat> I really shouldn't be you know maybe I should really put up a stink about this because it can be so intimidating the way that they hey, give me your ID that's that's not asking I know with the with the, with the with the constitutional lawyers and the in the supreme court says you know are you a reasonable person? Are you free to you feel free to leave people don't right. feel free when when cops are saying give me your ID." that's not a question it's not a request no. it, you know it really is a demand their, their physical presence their, their, their proximity to you and all this type of stuff we can get into um so that's that's one thing that i want to change about law enforcement um so let's get into the, the, the book was really good you tell a number of, of really heart-wrenching stories. We talked about the little children in cages and you told a story about uh, one woman who's, uh, who had, was nursing a baby and her milk had, dri- had dried up. You know, the stress of, of, the, of the actual immigration rate had caused her to not be able to feed her baby. And that, was, mm-hmm. that really kind of touched me. You know, just the, the physiological uh, uh, processes that go on when, when this type of thing happens uh, mm-hmm. it can be devastating. Are you a police officer who's taken a promotional exam one or two times and has not fared so well? Do you know someone who wants to become a police officer but is not sure about how to go about the process? Or maybe they've also taken the exam and not fared so well. Are you the head of an organization who's looking for leadership training for yourself or for your employees? LMH Police Training and Consulting Services has those services as well as more. My services can be offered through online virtual training or one-on-ones. I even have online courses for those who are on the go. You can buy my police officer preparation course, or you can purchase my promotional exam course all online. All of this is available and more at hunterpolicetraining.com. And remember, I'm here to prepare you for your future today.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. You know, in, in the book, I, I divided individual family and community to kind of organize these these rippling effects and I draw on this case of of a woman that we'll call Fernanda um, and she was in the apartment that was raided uh, so so briefly there was an immigration raid that was targeting an individual who was accused of selling drugs and having weapons and had been deported previously um, and reported that he had drugs and weapons on him when he was deported previously thus the police collaborated with ICE and specifically the SWAT team uh, who were the ones that kick in the door and ICE followed them after. Um, they raided the automobile shop and then the apartment above it and then the apartment uh, were multiple women and kids. And, and one of these women, Fernanda, um, had a baby who was, I believe, about four months, um, but otherwise was nursing. Um, and both women, both mothers in there, or rather two of the multiple women in there were nursing uh, infants or had infants of nursing age. Um, and the raid happens right and and so um, the raid happens all of the men were taken out and as Fernanda reports that they they uh, they had dogs they used gas um, and she said that that affected her body and her ability to produce palate. and you know Fernanda told me that a- after the raid her body could not produce palatable breast milk and her, her child kept throwing up the milk her baby kept throwing up the milk um, and she attributed it to many things, including the, the gas and the, the smell of the gas that made everybody sick. Uh, when I was talking to the sheriff about it, he said it was probably the, the fumes from a flashbang grenade. If you're familiar with those, you raid a building, there's light, there's sound, and there's just the, the smoke from the grenade. Um, but I use that example because it's an example, not only of changes in, in individual health, right? Um, this impacted Fernanda. I would argue psychologically, but at least physically so much that so the very makeup of her body changed, Right, the very, in this case, ability to produce palatable breast milk uh, changed. But it's also an example of, a, of the fundamental fracturing of a familial relationship, right? A mother and an infant. Um, mother is caring for her infant. This is perhaps the most a primal example of a, of a family dynamic. And it was fundamentally changed that day after the raid uh, because of how Fernanda's body reacted to the situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's terrible. It really was a touching story. Um, so to talk about just a little bit about what people may not realize what happens in the aftermath. Right. Um, I, I yeah. definitely want people to read, to read the book, but, but just give us a little sample of, of the destruction of life we touched on it a little bit, but the destruction of life post post a raid.
1: Sure. So, you know, I can, I can give a few and I think, uh, one is, um, uh, so these raids are often for a single individual person. Um, usually there's a target. Usually it's a guy, a man, um, though in the Trump administration, we do see more, more women than in the Obama administration. Uh, it's equal, opportunity. equal in opportunity in that, in that. <laughs> right. Oh, you laugh because it's sad.
0: Uh, you got, sometimes uh, you gotta laugh to keep him crying, you know? Right.
1: Uh, <laughs> so so it's certainly still more men but we see more women also but regardless there's usually one person and one of the things that happens that people don't realize um is that ice immigration and customs enforcement are the organization that or or the branch of the department of homeland security that conducts these raids ice will um question everybody else who they believe resembles the target right and so what does it look like to resemble the target i mean i think we very much know this from policing work in, in black communities uh, resembling a target means you fit the description usually meaning by gender and race you're a man and you're a latino or you're a man and you're black right so we know um that what ice does is question all of the other latino men in there and if they're undocumented also they start sweeping people up and this is what happened in this raid something like a dozen folks were ultimately detained um and you know i i, I say a dozen something like a dozen and as a researcher i always do not like being unable to put a specific number on it and that used to frustrate me. Um, but one of the other thing, points that I learned here is that often folks don't really know how many people are taken out or what ultimately happens. There's just this chaotic and, and like frantic, they disappeared and they disappeared and I think they have been, may have been deported or they might've moved away or they might've quit their job and tried to escape uh, or I shouldn't say escape escape the area, but rather leave the area to a place where they don't think ICE is going to continue enforcing. Um, So sometimes it's hard to put a number on the on the number of people who are removed. So there's certainly um, this impact. Right. And then when we can we can think about what happens when you're worried about being arrested, not because of what you did, but because of who you resemble. Right. And so this is one of the things that we saw in the aftermath of the raid too is that people stop driving and they put themselves, they lock themselves in their house and, you know, as it's talked about in raids in other states, they like drew the blinds and hide in the basement. Um, and what happens when you don't leave your house? You don't go to a grocery store, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to your church, you're not going to the park, you're not going to all of these other places that we would kind of agree as a community, we need to stay healthy, right? Um, and so you folks don't often con- connect to like a raid happens and folks start going, stop going to something like, like church. Uh, but the mechanism, the way that unfolds is, is via racial profiling. And I know in other communities, this is very much the same. Um, you think after, after 9-11, when, when the police were profiling folks who were Muslim or who were Arab, the whole dynamic of the community changed. Our willingness to go to these places in which we were stereotyped, which are often our churches, often our parks and our community centers, it all changed. Um, so we see this fear of racial profiling really impacted folks um, Willingness to move about, drive about, and, and in, integrate into their communities. And then, you know, I could talk about at least a couple of 200 pages worth of the impacts of a raid. But just to give one more, um, one was was for children. You know, for children in these buildings, you can imagine. Like, I think this just extends beyond politics. Extends beyond whether or not you're a child psychologist or a public health researcher or anything like that. Um, a, a child seeing their parent forcibly removed and handcuffed and taken away is going to impact that child, right? If you don't have, if you have kids, I know fundamentally you can you can feel that intuitively. Everyone has at least been a kid and can imagine what it's like to, to see a parent. And if you didn't like your parents, right, to see an uncle or an aunt or somebody else taken away, traumatic. It weighs with you. They they disappear into a prison or a detention system and they're gone. Um, but if you weren't there, if you're not in the raid. One of the other impacts for kids is that they're just really scared their parents aren't gonna be able to pick them up again, right? So children will go to school and they'll like hug their dad, not knowing if it's gonna be their dad who picks them up at the end of the day. And, you know, this also goes without saying, it's gonna be kind of hard to do well in school while you're worried about if your dad's gonna be back. Um, and so this, this, I know this this sits with kids, this, this messes with kids thinking it makes a lot of them, sick especially if they're closely connected Um, but you know you know how word spreads through a community right you know if there was a raid over there you know if someone was arrested over there so it's not just like my dad has a target on his back it's dads have targets on their back you know that's how kids relate to what's going on I mean so those are just some of the the impacts that I think are easy to miss after events like these
0: is there any research on long-term uh, PTSD psychological uh, effects on not only the kids, as you mentioned, but also on adults, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a good question. And the answer is not really. Um, and I'll, I'll go into a few reasons why. And it's part of it is for so long, um, immigration research wasn't about enforcement. It only changed into enforcement recently. It was much more about who comes from where and what do they it's going to sound silly what are they eating when they get here that impacts their diet and their health um are they using medical services what are their different cultural and health practices and it was a recent change where we started thinking like oh okay well they're not really immigrating back and forth anymore they're staying in the us but their lives are fundamentally being shaped by this organization that's trying to take them out or trying to take their loved ones out right and so i think all researchers we kind of had to admit that like oh We can't look at the government as if everybody's being treated equally. We can't even look at the government as if some people are getting a little more resources and some people are getting a little less. Um, Particular platforms of the government fundamentally desire to do something unhealthy to these people, and that's what we need to start researching. Um, I I often see parallels in the policing policing work. We haven't exactly looked at the long-term impacts of things like police violence, um, just like we haven't looked at the impact of long-term um, immigration impacts and I guess the other fly in here sorry all right where was okay I guess the the, the other thing I'll, I'll add to that is uh, you know so a question is usually around PTSD because folks associate killing or being shot or seeing somebody die with PTSD as is appropriate um, when PTSD developed uh, it was it was based on the, the uh, in, in when PTSD developed it was based on situations from generally men who went to war uh, and who generally came back from war. So they would have reactions such as hyper vigilance where like they're aware of everything and they're hyper reactive to a noise. It was really adaptive in Vietnam and it's not adaptive when you go back to civilian life and hence we diagnose and treat it. What we see more in communities of color is we're not leaving war zones and coming into peace zones. Um, when we see there's police violence, those police aren't in there one month, one year, and then leaving and now you're dealing with the hypervigilance, right? So things like hypervigilance in an undocumented community are really good survival strategies. Like if you see a blue or a red light and your heart rate goes up and you look around, um, that's, that makes a lot of logical sense. So we have to really reframe how we think about our mental health diagnoses because many of these PTSD reactions are still survival strategies because folks have not left the war zones that they're in. right? Folks have not left uh, the places in which they're surveilled and often experience violence, even in their own communities. Yeah.
0: Do you ever uh, deal with the, or look at the, the possibility of, of racial, uh, of racial uh, animus in the immigration system, right? Uh, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. You know, how many uh, uh, people are actually overstaying their visas who are here from Ireland, versus, and I'm not picking on Irish people. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, um, uh, versus those who are who are being targeted from, you know, south of the border. You ever look at those type of statistics?
1: yeah yeah it's 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 hard to look at those statistics like a lot of this um is just lacking in in data right but absolutely i mean lots of this is just founded on you know the whitening of a country you know the immigration policies are founded on wanting to to whiten the country and and looking more at undocumented immigrants of of color who are often latino and latina Um, and admittedly you know there's more undocumented folks from um mexico and Central America, largely from proximity, right? So that is also the bulk of the, of the population. Uh, but you know, I, so in the previous, admi- in other administrations, I would, and I guess I still do wholeheartedly argue that yes, there's a lot of focusing on immigrants of color more than any immigrants broadly, right? And um, the Trump administration, we also just see a continued focus on this group as well as an expansion to include um, immigrant groups from that it felt like other administrations did not target right so this whitening of our nation and this wanting everyone in the U.S. to have generational roots of that whiteness and I think one of the 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 most painful examples right now um, has been this international student policy that we just saw where if international students were taking all of their classes online uh, they can't come into the country right or they can't continue getting their education in the U.S. and it's this weird uh, moment of vulnerability where the reason they can't take their classes on a campus is because of a pandemic. And we're saying, well, if because of the pandemic, you can't take all your classes in person, you can't be in the U.S. Um, you know, it's, it's just an example of this extensive efforts to exclude whomever we can from the country, regardless of, of country of origin.
0: So let's dig into a little bit uh, about why people do Across the border, what's going on? Sure. And, you know, you know, geopolitically, why are people coming, w- w- doing these trains and caravans, and and yeah. what, is, what what does he call it? Uh, uh, invasions, and wh- why are they doing all this? I, yeah, I know they're yeah. not invading.
1: <laughs> no, no, sure, sure. But the uh, yeah, the caravan was the recent right. the recent right. word, and there was something around uh, invasion, and I forget what it was. Um, yeah, I mean, the reasons have been similar for you know, throughout all of history, people migrate for work, people migrate for job opportunities, uh, people migrate to escape danger, to escape poverty and to escape joblessness, right? So many of many of it is those reasons um, that folks would migrate to begin with. I think every time you get into this conversation, one of the responses is, well, why don't folks fix their own country first, right? Like, so yeah, uh, people wouldn't be leaving Mexico if they would deal with their own drug problems and, and you know narco, uh narcotics issues there, uh, to which I'll always respond, you know there's a, a seller and there's a buyer and if the US would stop purchasing Mexican drugs, it would go a long way in hitting the, the supply, right So folks in Mexico are producing drugs for us to consume, which is often changing their government and their system and causing these poverty. Folks are fleeing coming to our country and looking for jobs and work and opportunity here, largely because of U.S. Uh, purchasing of supplies created down there rather, I mean, frankly, purchasing of drugs uh, for Mexico and beyond and Central America. Um, and then you asked, oh, why do folks, one of the other issues that's come with the with the uh, tightening of the border security, right? Is so undocumented folks used to have their families in often Mexico, but sometimes Mexico and Central America, come for work, mostly guys, mostly men, and then go back, right? So they would come and go back and come and go back. And often this was seasonal agricultural jobs. And then the border got a lot more secure and nobody could go back. Uh, so they were staying in these, in, you know, often new destinations like Michigan. Um, and so then they brought their families with them, right? So one of the ironies of this tighter border control has actually been, undocumented folks coming here and staying here rather than living bi-nationally. And you know, it's just an example of, we've chosen to get more secure, increase the security in our, in our border to increase our restrictions instead of any number of other options about having more visiting visas or opportunities to go back and forth and work. Um, we tend to think about like the immigration laws are the only immigration laws that could ever possibly exist instead of thinking through what other, what other options are. Um, but, you know, to directly answer your question, people migrate for the same reasons throughout all of history, usually, usually jobs and, and better opportunities than they're finding and getting away from dangerous situations.
0: So I got uh, two more questions for you and then, then I'll let you go. What, sure. what, what uh, proposed changes would you make to immigration law so we don't have these raids? Uh, I, I You just mentioned uh, about, uh, you know, thinking about different possibilities. What possibilities mm-hmm. would you like to see?
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, and, and one of what I find, I, I, speaking of, of the drug war, um, I find it telling that the, the warrant used for, for the raid that took place in the book was the same kind of warrant used um, that led to the killing of, of Breonna Taylor, right? So much of the changes that I would propose are actually not necessarily for immigration, but about uh, policing broadly and our use of violence and our use of force And never have these things been more apparent in the public than at the current moment, right? We see um, folks saying now defund the police and then change the structure of who is going into our communities, right? Must it be armed police or can it be uh, folks who are offering mental health services, right? Is is a frequent example. Um, So I think the militarization of the police is definitely one of the reasons that we've escalated in violence. the SWAT team was the, was used in this raid. And you know, looking at the history of the SWAT team, um, SWAT team was originally like this anti-terrorist, anti-kidnapping um, organiz- or I guess, group or team uh, within the police or right. unit within the police. Uh, but then what happened is we had a lot of SWAT teams throughout the country and not a lot to do with them. Um, so then the drug war came and we decided, oh, let's just use these SWAT teams to enforce drug laws a lot. Um, it was like we had the hammer and now we can use this, this as a nail when often um, the drug laws we're enforcing don't require this kind of militarization, right? So what we see is that we know that the war on drugs often criminalized mostly black, but black and Latino folks. And we know that SWAT teams and heavily militarized policing uh, units are, are address these you know, drug infractions. So what we see is this escalation of violence and violent police tactics in communities of color because of the connection of the two. Um, so lots of the, you know, what I would say is, is going back to why we militarized and why we're enforcing against particular drug laws, especially as we see, you know, weed being legalized, how many black and brown folks are been in jail and in prison for so long because of, of what white folks are now selling in established, you know, weed shops, right? So it's this, it's this pivot on our drug laws. Um, I'm trying to think if I had any other, I, I certainly have lots of public health recommendations and I'll just, just to go into one or two, uh, I think this requesting of IDs is, I think there should be a policy across departments um, that any type of ID is an acceptable ID for the purposes of knowing who somebody is, right? So we need to, what I see is that when folks show a passport, if the officer wants to dig in more, the officer will, as, as we discussed. And as a policy, this should not be allowed. The ID, sh- the, the ID should not be assigned that they should dig in more to immigration status when the reason asking for an ID had nothing to do with immigration status. Um, and, and then I guess as another just general, you know, I can't help but think back to uh, the pandemic since that's on all of our minds. Um, we see that many of the, of the money distributed after uh, the pandemic is restricted to folks who are, who are citizens, right? Uh, so undocumented folks aren't getting any of this money. Um, they're losing jobs just as much. Uh, they're continuing to work in high-risk jobs. They're still caring for children. For some folks, it matters that those children are US citizens. Uh, for other folks, they're children and should be cared for either way Uh, but we need to support folks financially who are working or unemployed uh, no matter their immigration status. Absolutely.
0: Um, I know I said I had two more questions, but I I, I often lie about that. Uh, No problem. I I don't do it on purpose, (laughs) but I just think it's sort of something else. What is, I mean, I want to bring it back to what we talked about almost at the beginning is the fact that people uh, uh, will say, uh, you know, they shouldn't have been here in in the first place. Is there a reason that people should a U.S. citizen's tax-paying citizen, should care about what's going on with these raids. Does it fin- Does it impact them financially, in any way, shape, form, or fashion? Whether I mean, is is there any reason that these that people in those positions should, should care about who's in the country, uh, or and or about the raids that are occurring? Is there any reason that they should care?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I like pop my back, pop my knuckles, get ready to <laughs> dig into this one. Um, yeah, so our, is there a reason why folks who are citizens or uh, folks who are not undocumented should care about these raids? And, you know, I'd say, of course, I'll, I'll go with the, um, the human argument first, which, bear, you know, doesn't change everybody's minds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we care about the mental health of our and the mental and physical health of, of our neighbors. Right. So one of the things I'm, I'm learning and um, I feel as though I both lived and learned and wrote about and finally learned how to talk about but these communities aren't isolated. It, your zip code, it doesn't, you know, citizens live here and documented folks live here. These are people in your community. So their children are going to school with your children and their children are singing in the same choirs and they're playing on the same soccer teams. Like you're impacting the parents of your kids' friends, right? Like we are integrating our lives and our systems throughout the country, not just in the border, but everywhere. Um, the second is that we're, you know, we're seeing, um, so you're saying, so you asked me, Captain Hunter, should other citizens, why should other citizens care? And I want to go with why should other, uh, in, in the in research, we'd say marginalized groups, but we can say like folks of color, you know, any number of other, other ways to think through who we are in solidarity with. Um, why should we care is because the government doesn't always distinguish um, us as we distinguish ourselves so they're not necessarily saying this organization will work with undocumented folks and target them this organization is going to work with black folks and this organization will target only muslims and arabs after 9 11. it's not how it works it's often how we talk about it immigration is a latino issue policing is a black issue um, it's often talked about like that but it's not how it works um, after the killing of floyd we saw border patrol was brought in and we saw border patrol drones were used to film the protesters, right? We see the blending of this. We see one set of government resources that's used to oppress undocumented folks and Latinos is used to affect, used to uh, impact the lives of black folks the next day. So as far as multiple communities of color, um, they're all using, these organizations are using the same tactics. My future is very much bound up in, in your future and how we respond uh, to these groups who are, who are oppressing us and, and targeting us.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Uh, final question is uh, I want to ask you uh, to tell the story uh, that I. This is a story that I quote you in the book about. Is <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> is uh, a story about uh, you? went on, on a on a ride along, and uh, you noticed that an officer had pulled over a, uh, a a car, and he pulled over the car because the white guy had ducked down in the seat, and the black guy was the driver if you can take it from there, I want you to tell the story because this sure. is the story I quoted you about, I mean, just the, how you could see, you know, what people are complaining about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it was, it was interesting as I did this, this raid happened in 2013 and I did work in, you know, advocacy and, and scholarly work in 2013, 14, 15. Um, so as I mentioned, this was right during the, the you know, Black Lives Matter movement. It was after Gardner was killed. It was after uh, Freddie Gray was killed. And uh, so I was, I was writing along with police, largely to see how police enforced immigration law, right? How do police talk about immigrants and undocumented folks? Well, police wanted to talk about Black Lives Matter and their role in it. though so they didn't use the words Black Lives Matter, but it was what they you know, were certainly talking about. Um, and it was interesting because I feel as though I was, I was welcomed. I was led into police cars a number of times, and it surprised me. Um, and I, came to understand a little bit about what was going on and hindsight, it's a bit more obvious. Um, I think departments were really hungry for the approval of folks of color. And I'm a Latino person of color, but I'm also, you know, as I described in the book, fairly privileged as opposed to many of my peers. I have lighter skin, um, I don't have an accent, so I'm really educated, overly educated, I'd say. And frankly, I think I wasn't black. Um, I saw some other people that I was with who were black described really differently than I was described. Um, And we were engaging in the same stuff, right? So police let me in the car and then talked to me about what was going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. And this uh, really made me reflect on this grouping of people of color and how different our experiences will be within that group. Um, I'm giving too much background and not getting to your story. So one time, uh, yeah, I I was in a car and, and the cop was a young officer, white officer, probably like 22. Um, they kept telling me, you know, uh, maybe you'll get to see me do a foot race. Maybe you'll get to see me do a foot race. There's a lot of this mentality of foot race and weaponry and um, in in much of the literature and much of the story is called like cowboying. Um, But there was, we were, we saw a car pass. It was night and there's a white guy and a black guy in it. And one of them uh, slouched down in the car. And so he turned on his lights and he pulled them over and he, Pulled the black guy out of the car and he sat him on the curb and I believe he cuffed him and another cop got there about the same time and the other cop got there and, and stood over him and the white guy was still in the car and to me it's like I, I can't believe this is happening so obviously like doesn't he know that how obvious this is um, and so you know he's questioning them questioning what they had what was in the car I think he questioned So he pulled them over because he saw the dude slouch, right? That was the reason he gave me. And then I believe he smelled weed or something in the car. So he started asking about the weed. Ultimately, um, he lets them both go, right? And so, you know, in my head, in my head is kind of spinning, like, do you really just handcuff and seat the black guy out of the car and the white guy was still in the car? Like, there's got to be some awareness of what's going on. Um, So I asked him why. And he said, well, I I wasn't able to keep track of both of them. I could only keep track of of one. Um, But that doesn't really answer why the man who was handcuffed was the man who was handcuffed. And then what really stuck out to me is in the end, he said, oh, you know, what's really what's really wild is that I saw the white guy on YouTube the other day talking about the guns he had. And that just really blew my mind. Like, I cannot fathom any universe in which a black man would be on YouTube talking about his weapons and would be allowed to sit in the car without being handcuffed, right? Without being handcuffed, without being pulled out, nothing. Um, you know, so, so in the end, and as I, as I reflect on the book, it was often that, you know, the officer was unaware of his own, uh, I would say, racist behavior that was going on, like, right in front of, like, with him and, I mean, right in front of me, um, it was just lost on him. And i think largely one of the reasons is because you know officers continue to see individual things they do whereas the public and certainly you know researchers see the large scale of what's going on and it's very much why the public is able to like the police because they know a nice or a good police officer there's a great police officer who's come into the school while another half of the public is looking at the whole set of data in which Black folks are much more likely to be killed, to be used for, to, to have force used on them and, and to be thrown in jail, right? So regardless of how good the officer is that came in and talked to my son, there is a statistical difference in how this organization treats people. But in that particular instance, it was like it was invisible to him because he was just thinking of that one interaction.
0: Yeah, and that story really touched me um, as far as, I mean, here you are you know, on a ride along, you're able to see it and this guy, I don't, You know, I wonder if he ever read your book and if he, if he could see his behavior, if you look back right. and say, you know what, I know this guy had guns. I stopped. The reason I stopped him is because he's the one that slouched down. And who do I handcuff, who I take out of the car? The black guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wonder if it's completely lost on him.
1: Um, I do too. <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, I thank you for coming on the show. man. been a great, great conversation. You have any papers coming up or what are you, what
1: are you working on now or? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so actually, what I what we've uh, done with me and a, a collaborator, so this book was on a home raid, and you know, I thought at the time that the last of the large worksite raids that happened, you know, so happened during Obama, that one of the good examples. Um, President Bush, one of the good example was the Postville raid in Iowa, in which you know, three hundred people were taken. So vastly different at scale. We didn't really see those through the Obama era. Thought we were kind of done with them. Um, we see them again in the Trump administration. So the latest iteration of the work is, is I've been able to speak with folks who have responded, including community members, right? So when I, when I say responders, folks often think first responders. Um, but I actually, uh, I mean, organizations, teachers, churches, etc., who respond to these um, raids, these large scale worksite raids where, you know, between like 50 and a couple of hundred people are, are taken out.
0: Very mm. good. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, thanks for having me. So <laughs> yeah. thanks for coming on the show, really appreciate it. I'd like to have you back sometime, we can chop it up again and hopefully it'd be under
1: better circumstances. And all that yeah, kind of stuff. for sure, happy to do it. It was great having you and I look forward to uh, circulating when it comes out.
0: Oh, absolutely, thank, thank you so much, I appreciate it. I need all the business I, I could get, all the, all the publicity I could get, thanks so much. Sounds good, yeah, thank, thank you. Care.